Good evening. My name is Vince, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Vince. Hi. Uh, <laughs> I am delighted to be here. It's uh, really, you know, uh, many of us, we were talking earlier, do a lot of this. Uh, we get the opportunity to go to a lot of these conferences. And I want to tell you something. This is a good one. This is a good conference. You are hospitable. You are understanding. And... Uh, you picked great speakers. I mean, no, great. you did. Uh, and I really mean that. I, I, uh, with the exception of tonight, perhaps, but uh, this weekend has been just sensational. I, I, I know I really enjoyed listening to Riley last night, and, and Bob was magnificent. I've heard him talk before. I thought he gave the talk of his life last night. That was a wonderful AA talk. And I was just was a delight to be here to hear it. And... Uh, I also want to tell you, I love John and Karen Ackerland. We are, uh, so I'm biased about them. Uh, we have been uh, together for many years, and uh, it's a delight to be with them this weekend. Uh, and I'm just so happy that we could be together. Uh, and Nancy is a member of my home group, and she was just marvelous. She made me cry in an AA meeting. I don't, you know, and that really uh, irritates me. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm from the Pacific group. And we don't do that, right? <laughs> but uh, sometimes we do. And uh, it's just, and I didn't hear uh, Don this afternoon, uh, but I, I heard that his talk on the history of AA was wonderful. And so it's just been a great weekend, and I'm just delighted to be a part of it. Uh, I can't be here tomorrow to hear Sandy, but we had lunch this afternoon, and uh, I know a lot of her story already. And uh, I'm sure that you will uh, be pleased tomorrow morning. Uh, I want to thank Laurel, my friend, for picking me up at the, uh, at the airport. Laurel is in my financial events class, long distance, by phone, from Cincinnati, which makes her participation colorful at times. But uh, we've, uh, you know, we've been trying to work with her on the phone, and so uh, it's just great. It's just been a, a great weekend, and, and I'm in a good frame of mind. And, uh, and, and, and the way things are going in my life right now, uh, some would say I don't have a real good reason to be in a real great frame of mind, but isn't that the, isn't that the way it is in Alcoholics Anonymous? Because what it is that happens here and what we do here has nothing to do with that, does it? Not really. And sometimes we tend to forget that. But that's why this is good for me, and you are good for me, and being here is so very good for me. Uh, I want to welcome uh, all of the new people uh, in their early sobriety to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to know that that's where you are tonight. You're an AA, <laughs> which uh, is a hell of a thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, that's uh, kind of like the bottom of a barrel, you know. I mean, Jesus, think of it. AA. Who the hell ever wanted to end up in AA? And here you are. Uh, and if you're anything at all like I was when I was new, well, first of all, I've never met you, if you're new, but I know a lot about you. I know that down deep in your soul, you are utterly convinced that you are not really alcoholic, that you are not really like us, and that your case is different. And it is true that sometimes it appears as though you are an alcoholic. But that's not really your problem. I also know that uh, you've had a bad year. 
I know that for sure. <laughs> I mean, things haven't gone well the last several months, have they? And the sum total of all of that is you ended up in AA. And uh, God Almighty. You know, I mean, Jesus, I would rather... Uh, I mean, you could call me a child molester, but not AA. You know, I mean, that is the way that I felt uh, when I first got to Alcoholics Anonymous, which was a very long time ago now. It was in November of 1966, and it was on a rainy Friday night. I know that all of you young girls are looking at me and thinking, he cannot be that old. I know. I know you <laughs> the truth is, I'm not. Uh, I was seven at that meeting. <laughs> and, but it was in November of 1966, and it was on a rainy Friday night, and it was in Long Beach, California, in a section of Long Beach that was called the Los Altos section, which at that time was a very upscale community where uh, they had a lot of uh, uh, really upscale homes, and all, it seemed to me they were all owned by dentists and insurance brokers and real estate agents who were all married to pretty blonde women who went to Al-Anon. And they all went to this big meeting in the Presbyterian Church on Friday night. And it was really an event. Uh, you must remember in 1966, there were not AA meetings on every corner. And this was the big event in Long Beach. On Friday night, everybody went to the basement of this Presbyterian Church to the Los Altos meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, the whole AA community was there, and they dressed up. They put on coats and ties, and the, the ladies wore dresses, and it was really a big deal. And, uh, uh, and the, the, over, the, the most uh, overwhelming memory of that evening is when I walked into that room, and I looked around that room. No one looked like they were an alcoholic. Everyone looked good. I mean, they were dressed well, and they smelled well, and they sounded good. And nobody looked like they were an alcoholic. And if you were to wander into that room on any given Friday night and someone were to tell you, if you had nothing to do with alcoholism or AA, and you wandered into this room and someone were to tell you, you are in a room filled with alcoholics, pick them out. You wouldn't pick anybody out. As opposed to this room tonight, as I look around. You, quite frankly, I can see several of you that uh, I would pick right out. But nobody in that room on that night. They all looked too good. Uh, you would have picked me out. I'd be the only one because I was filthy and dirty and I had on a torn t-shirt and a filthy pair of jeans and I'd spent the previous five days in the Long Beach City Jail due to a series of unfortunate circumstances that were not my fault. <laughs> Police department in Long Beach, California is fascist. And they had abused my civil rights on a regular basis. And I used to end up in the Long Beach City Jail a lot in those days. And uh, I, uh, I got into that room and I sat in the back up against the wall in the basement of this church. And, and I was, uh, I should tell you from the outset, I am Irish and I am Catholic and I have difficulty with people from Texas. Uh, <laughs> we have a communications problem uh, by and large. And I sat next to this guy who was about six foot five and he had on cowboy boots and a 10-gallon hat in his lap, and his name was Tex. And Tex wanted to hit me. And he told me, he said, boy, I'm going to hit you. And I remember thinking, you know, why don't you go hit somebody else? Leave me the hell alone, you know. But he was going to hit me. 
and the first thing he did is he repeated to me in rapid succession all of the AA cliches, one after another. And they are dreary, aren't they, if you knew? I mean, really. I mean, good grief. Easy does what? You know, and he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Ah, keep it simple. I thought, I'll bet you do, Tex. <laughs> I don't have any quarrel with that, I'll tell you. And the meeting began, and it began much the way we began here tonight. Uh, they read that portion of our book that in essence constitutes our program. They read the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you are new, or relatively new here, and you have heard this refrain over and over again, if you want what we have, that's what we have. And if you are to recover here, it is required that you take them. It is not suggested. That is a lie. It is mandatory. You take them, you get better. You don't take them, you get worse. And you get worse while you sit in the middle of AA. That's bad news, isn't it, if you knew? But it's true. Recovery here comes from these 12 steps, nothing else. Now, I heard them read, and I should also tell you I heard nothing new. I am the end product of eight years of Dominican nuns and four years of Jesuit priests, and I want you to know there is nothing new here to me. This is old hat. These, as a matter of fact, it's rather broad brush, isn't it? I mean, uh, searching and fearless moral inventory, not a new concept to me. It's not unique to Alcoholics Anonymous either, let me tell you. That's not new in AA. Uh, in the ethic in which I was raised, in the religious tradition in which I was raised, it has a different name. It's called examination of conscience. But it is precisely the same exercise. Admitting to God and to another human being the exact nature of your wrongs is something, uh, that's a snap for me. I did that every Saturday afternoon from the time I was seven years old to maybe I was 15 or 16. I know all about this. And I suppose if this has anything to do with the way that I drink, I am truly screwed. <laughs> and I can understand why it might work for you if you're Protestant or, you know, uh, I understand. This is new to you and perhaps it may work. So on, I, what I did is I sat in the back of that room and on some subconscious level, I dismissed these 12 steps. I didn't reason all of this out, but somewhere in my subconscious I said, I'm not like them. If that's their answer, there is something else wrong with me. And so the meeting continued and it was a good meeting and several people participated and they said wonderful things. They were innocuous things, however, that were uh, inapplicable to my life, but they were nice. Uh, they were seemingly a group of nice people who drank too much and quit drinking and then went on back to being nice people uh, in the Presbyterian Church on Friday night. And uh, uh, it was all very nice, but uh, my case was certainly different. And if I had any doubts as to whether I belonged there or not, they were cured at the end of the meeting when they had birthday parties. I mean, really. Aren't they embarrassing? I mean, uh, birthday parties, middle-aged people uh, sing happy birthday to some jerk. Uh, who hasn't had a drink for a year and they have a cake with a candle on it and they blow this candle out I mean it really 
it, it, it's, it, it's, it smacks of something that should take place in a mental institution, doesn't it really? I mean, uh, in the day room, you know, right after dance therapy, you know, we'll have birthday cakes for the alcoholics, you know, I mean, Jesus, it was really uh, awful. And a series of people uh, had these birthday parties, and one in particular was a woman who was about 110, and she'd been sober forever, she had a fire on top of this cake. She got up here and she blew out the candles and she came up to the podium and she said her name was Phoebe and that she was an alcoholic. And then she said something about, did I want what she had? Uh, not tonight, Phoebe. And that was my first day, Amy. <laughs> And I think it's safe to say that I did not have a spiritual awakening. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I did, which is, uh, I suppose, if there's anything of use that I have to say in AA, for the next three and one half years, I stayed sober in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And during that period of time, I did everything there was to do in AA. I participated in Alcoholics Anonymous on virtually every level. I washed cups, I scrubbed ashtrays, I set up chairs, I cleaned up meetings, I participated on panels. I did everything there was to do in AA except one thing. I did not take these steps. And as a result, my alcoholism got worse. It got worse while I stayed continuously sober and committed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new, I would like you to understand that. Presence in Alcoholics Anonymous does not equal recovery. Sometimes they're not even close. <laughs> recovery is these 12 steps. That is recovery. I did not take them. Consequently, the time I spent in Alcoholics Anonymous began to get more dreary by the day because I sat in AA getting worse and the way that I knew I was getting worse is I was surrounded by people who were getting better and I watched them get better and you can see people recover here can't you does anyone ever have to tell you they're recovering in Alcoholics Anonymous you just need to be around them something happens to people who get better here they light up their eyes change they have a sense of purpose. They have direction. They're going somewhere. And if you're like me, you sit here and you are arrogant and you're depressed and you're judgmental. And you say to yourself, when do I get to feel like that? Why don't I get to feel like that? Where is mine? I used to think you had secret meetings. Have you ever had that feeling? <laughs> Where they met without you and, and told you the real, you know, but that's the way that I lived in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, wonderful things happened to me on the outside. I, I, my life came together. I mean, I got great. I should tell you, uh, I have a. I come from a wonderful family, a wonderful, kind, loving family. And sometimes it's really. Uh, and they're Irish and Catholic, and there are no other alcoholics in them. That is heresy in AA, isn't it? <laughs> there aren't any other alcoholics in my family. There are just, except recently, a grand nephew, but. Aside from that, they're all disgustingly normal, kind, decent, loving people. 
and, uh, and it makes me crazy, uh, quite frankly. But that's who they are. And they've always loved me. Through the worst of it. Always. And I always knew it. I am the fifth child in a family of five kids. I have four older sisters. And my youngest sister is 11 years older than I am. And my mother was 45, and my father was 50 when I was born, in 1940. And that was a big deal, let me tell you. Here in this big Irish family with all these girls came the crown prince. <laughs> I got to tell you. Here I came along, and they treated me. My sisters adored me. My sisters dressed me. It was during the war. They dressed me in soldier suits and sailor suits. I have pictures saluting the flag. I mean, they took me to, to school with them and to work with them, and they were just, you know, I mean, uh, it would make you throw up. <laughs> really nauseating. And my father, I got to tell you, my father worshipped me. My father loved me so much, I, he, he never said a cross word to me until the day he died. He just, I was just the apple of his eye. My, uh, my earliest recollections of Christmas are... Uh, three o'clock on Christmas morning, my father in my bedroom, kneeling down beside the bed, and he would wake me up, and he would say things like, I just saw the sleigh leave. We better go downstairs. And the entire family would get up in the middle of the night and go downstairs because my father couldn't wait. I was not abused. Now, I have been present in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have heard people tell about lives that make me weep. They have lived lives and childhoods that are absolutely heart-wrenching. And I wonder how they survive. And I don't understand how some of them survive with what they've had to go through. But I must tell you that is not the case with me. I come from this magnificent, wonderful, loving family. Uh, my parents died within one week of each other when I was 12 years old. My father dropped dead on January the 3rd, 1953, of a massive coronary, and my mother died a week later. She had been ill ever since I was born. I was kind of what you call a menopause baby, and, and she was never... I never remember my mother being out of a wheelchair because she was sick ever since I was born. She had lung disease and congestive heart disease failure and a whole host of illness, and... And uh, when he died, I guess she just quit. She couldn't go on any further, and so she died on January the 9th. And we had two big, huge Irish funerals within the space of a week and a half. And uh, Now, that's tough on a 12-year-old kid. I don't, there's no question about that. But remember, I'm surrounded by people who love me. I have these four sisters who are now married and, and have beginning families of their own. And, and my brother-in-laws are wonderful guys. <laughs> I can't even say anything bad about a brother-in-law. Isn't that... Not right, is it, in an AA meeting? You so got these wonderful brother-in-laws, and they loved me, and they wanted the best for me, and they all would have a big fight over who was going to, where I was, who I was going to go to live with. They all wanted me. You know, it was not a question of not being wanted. It was, they had a big fight. No, we want them, we want them. And I ended up going to live with, with an uncle, a bachelor uncle, who was 65. He was my mother's brother, and he decided that I should go live with him. Now, he was a very powerful man. He was a quintessential Irish bachelor. He went to Mass and Communion every day of his life. He went to daily Mass. 
He was a politician. He was mayor of Jersey City, New Jersey for 26 consecutive years to start out with. He was state chairman of the Democratic Party of the state of New Jersey. And he was a powerful man. And he decided that I ought to go live with him and that he was going to see to it that I was educated and that, and that the right things happened for me. Well, I showed him. <laughs> but I went to live with my uncle. And I want to tell you about my uncle. He loved me. And I always knew that he loved me. And there was never any question of that. And he wanted the best for me. And I always knew that. And, but we had a communications problem. I was 12 and he was 65. And so he was an old world man. And I was raised that way. We ate dinner at opposite ends of a long dining room table in white shirts and ties. This is the way that we live. And our conversation was about New Jersey politics. Uh, I knew more about New Jersey. I knew more about national politics by the time I was 13 or 14 than most of the politicians did. This is the way we, he talked to me like I was 50. And I answered him like I was 50, which I suppose is, you know, but this is the way that, but always, always, he wanted the best for me and he loved me and he cared about me. And uh, the, the kind of man he was, he was, uh, I don't recall ever seeing my uncle dressed in anything but a dark blue pinstripe suit and a starch white shirt and a tie. On Saturday mornings, that's how he dressed. You know, I mean, this is who he was. And uh, he had some very definite ideas about where I was to go to school, what courses I was to take, and how things were going to be. He was a man that was used to getting his own way. Uh, there was no such thing as going to school and choosing. A, no one ever said to me, what would you like to take this year? You know, that was never an option. That was decided. Uh, I went to four different Jesuit prep schools. I was thrown out of everyone I was in <laughs> for drinking, raising hell, in some kind of trouble, or a combination of all of the above. And uh, I was, uh, they, I'd get thrown out of the one I was in, and they'd get me in another one the following year. I went to the four of the very best in New Jersey and New York, believe me, the very best schools. I graduated uh, from a school in New York City. Uh, I was valedictorian of my class. I was uh, at the top of the, I was always a good student, incidentally. I get A's. Uh, is what I get, but I'm a behavior problem, uh, and I'm in trouble a lot, all the time. But academically, I'm very good, so I'm perpetually spending time in front of uh, Jesuit priests, guidance counselors, who are saying things to me like, Vincent, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Beats the hell out of me. I mean, how do I know? You know, I mean, <laughs> if I knew, uh, I don't know why. I, I just am who I am. And I, I got thrown out of that school. I, I was due to give the address at graduation. But I not only did not get to give the address, I did not get to attend graduation because I borrowed this priest's car and went joyriding, drunk. <laughs> and they threw me out of school and they said, don't come back. Don't come back. Don't come to graduation. Don't, if we ever have a reunion, don't come to that. You just don't. <laughs> do not come back. And that's the way that it was in those days. You know, they, they just didn't tolerate anything. And... Uh, now, I wanted to go to school at the University of Notre Dame. If you were raised in the environment in which I was, that's where, that's where the spirit was. That's where everybody wanted to go to Notre Dame. And I had an academic scholarship to Notre Dame. That was not, but my uncle decided that I should not go to Notre Dame. He did not think it was a highly rated enough institution in those days. 
And it wasn't in those days. It was, uh, it is now, but it wasn't in those days. And he wanted me to go to an Ivy League school. So, uh, and as I said, he was paying the bills and he decided, and that's where you went. And I went on up to Cornell and began undergraduate school. And uh, I, uh, I spent every semester of undergraduate school at Cornell University on disciplinary probation <laughs> in the 60s. <laughs> you know how hard that was? <laughs> they were burning that campus to the ground. And I'm in trouble for drinking. <laughs> That's right. I was one semester concurrently on disciplinary probation and the dean's list. That's, that's what my undergrad career was like. In the middle of my senior year, I got in an argument with my uncle over money, and I showed him who was going to run my life, and it was not going to be him. And I quit school and joined the Navy as an enlisted man. I was a bright kid, wasn't I? I mean, really. I was a biochemistry major with about a 3.8 GPA on track to go to med school and walked out of that university in mid-semester of my senior year and joined the Navy as a hospital corpsman. <laughs> Smart move. <laughs> and they made me a, a hospital corpsman in the Navy. They didn't know what the hell to do with me. That's what they, they had this chemistry training and they sent me to hospital corps school. Now I did very well in hospital corps school. I graduated at the top of that class. And they sent me to a more advanced uh, school where they trained corpsmen to go on destroyers where there were not any physicians. Independent duty school, they called call it more advanced medical school. Did very well. Number one in that school. Then they sent me to medical administration school. Did very well. First two and a half years in the Navy, I just go to school. That's all I do. And I, I'm at the top of the class. Then they commissioned me an ensign in the Medical Service Corps. And they sent me, made me a medical administrative officer and assigned me to the 3rd Marine Division on Okinawa which was uh, not a good thing, as it turned out. <laughs> and they attached me to the 5th Marines, which is a, uh, uh, this is the regiment that raised the flag on Iwo Jima. And, you know, these guys are, uh, and me, as a medical administrative officer. And they didn't have a job for me. They couldn't figure out what the hell to do with me. So they put me in an officer's club on the northern end of Okinawa and forgot about me. <laughs> and I forgot about them, quite frankly. <laughs> And my duty consisted of getting up in the morning and reporting to the cocktail lounge of this officer's club at noon and drinking Hagen Hague Pinch at 60 cents a shot, which was pretty good. And that's what I did. And pretty soon they put somebody else up there. He was a surgeon out of Temple University and, and, and the Navy uh, lieutenant commander who uh, was a, a resident in thoracic surgery. And uh, he, uh, he was a very bad drunk, it turned out, and they didn't want him around patients. So they put him up in this officer's club with me. And he and I bonded. We, we became brothers. And we just lived in this officer's club. And uh, at night, we'd go out into the villages. And we'd, uh, we, you know, we grew beards, wore shorts, lost all our uniforms, uh, you know, just kind of forgot. We were even in the military. It, it just, uh, you know. And uh, I, I, at one point, uh, the, the Marine Corps celebrates its anniversary or its birthday in November. And it's really a big deal, let me tell you. Uh, and everyone has to show up. And uh, the Marine Corps birthday came around, and we didn't have any uniforms anymore to show up. This, we had to fly to Hong Kong to have uniforms made. To, uh, you know, that's, that's how we were. And finally, uh, they decided they had to give us some kind of duty. 
so they put us in charge of venereal disease control for the island of Okinawa. <laughs> what we did was the, uh, the, uh, the Marines would catch hideous uh, VD. They would get uh, diseases like gonorrhea, chancroid, uh, lymphogranuloma. They'd get uh, diseases that you only saw in textbooks and in Marines, <laughs> oddly enough. The only two places I think they ever were. And they would get them for the ladies in the villages. And uh, our job was to go into the villages to the bars where the ladies were and uh, inject them with bicillin. This is very tawdry, isn't it? But, it's, you know. but this is what we did. And uh, we had this awesome power to close the quarantine these bars. You make them off limits. So uh, they would see us coming and they'd set up the scotch for free. So we went all over Okinawa in this Jeep drinking scotch in all these bars for free. And we never quarantined one bar, ever. And we would drink for free. And there's a problem with that, though. You never, when you're in these bars, you didn't want to drink too much because you want these girls to start looking good to you. <laughs> you knew why you were there, you know. <laughs> so you had to walk a fine line. But this is what we did. And so uh, eventually our tour of duty came up and we got sent back to the United States and uh, we got, he went on back to Temple University and completed his residency. He's a cardiovascular surgeon today. Uh, and uh, and I, don't ever, I don't think he's ever been to a meeting either. That ought to frighten you. <laughs> don't have your bypass in Philadelphia. That's all I got to tell you. <laughs> but I went back up to Cornell and I, I finished that semester and I got my undergraduate degree and I applied to a variety of medical schools, all of which accepted me tentatively with the proviso that I had social problems uh, and drank too much and should go out into the world and work for a year and then come back hopefully mature and reapply and this was to uh, Harvard Med and a couple other really good schools and they said you go out and you work for a year take a job that Dean told me he said just take a job any kind of a job and grow up come back and apply because I really think you belong in medicine that someday you probably belong in medicine, but, you know, you need to mature. I've never gone back, unfortunately, and <laughs> seems I never made it. But I did something else that year. Uh, I got married. Now, uh, that's, I, do you remember when there was something wrong with you when you were young, and you knew there was something really wrong with you? Do you remember that? You had this sense that you, you weren't ready to label it alcoholism or any other label, really. You just knew you were different. And the remedy for that is to get married, <laughs> clearly. And so I married a, a lovely girl. She was, the, uh, uh, she was a, uh, a nurse in the Navy that I had known, and we, and we got married. And to say that we were incompatible is to understate it. We should never have had a second date. You know what I mean? Remember those relationships? And we got married, and she immediately got pregnant. And uh, you always notice how men say that. She got pregnant, you know, that's why men always express that. And we decided to move to Southern California. She was an only child and her parents were still living. And they lived in, uh, down in Orange County. And uh, the game plan was I would, uh, we would go to Southern California and I would uh, get a stopgap job for the summer. I would uh, go to med school at SC or UCLA and it was all going to be wonderful. So we got, into, we got down to Santa Ana and we moved in with her folks. And I got a stopgap job for the summer as a bartender. And that turned out badly. Uh, I was coming home at four and five in the morning, my clothes in disarray, paralyzed, drunk, 
not knowing where the hell I lived. And they put up with that for about a month and a half and they threw me out. And I found myself on Balsa Avenue in Santa Ana with a lot of Samsonite luggage and, and no money. And I got a job uh, for the rest of that summer driving an ambulance. And uh, I am here to tell you that uh, for the next four months, I drove an ambulance drunk in Orange County. And uh, when I tell you I drove it drunk, I never drove it sober. It frightened me sober. I had to be drunk to get near the goddamn thing, quite frankly. And I, uh, I am a blackout drinker, which made some of these ambulance calls very interesting. I had been on ambulance calls with the lights and the siren going on a code three call and I'd come out of a blackout. And I'd have to look at the guy next to me, my attendant, and I'd have to say things like, uh, where are we going? <laughs> Which would un unnerve him. One night I came out of a blackout uh, going around a cul-de-sac in Costa Mesa at four o'clock in the morning with the lights and the siren going, you know, I just lock on to something, you know what I mean? I just, going around a circle in this cul-de-sac and uh, the beacon was going and splashing into people's bedroom windows and they're all coming out on their porch and they're looking at this ambulance going around this circle and, and, uh, and I just couldn't get out of that you know what I mean I couldn't go anywhere I just kept going in this circle and they finally had to send a police car in to get ahead of me to lead me out that's what they did shortly after that I lost that job you can imagine that And shortly after that, I ended up in that AA meeting I told you about in November of 1965. And that's how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And with my newfound sobriety in AA, some wonderful things happened. A new profession had opened up in civilian medicine. It was called the Physician's Assistant Program. Many of you know what that is now, but uh, it, this was the beginning of it in the 60s. And the reason for it was that the, the guys they were graduating for the, from the med schools in the 60s we're all going directly into residency, specialty residencies. And there wasn't anybody doing primary medicine in the emergency room. So they needed to, uh, it was a terrible problem in medicine in the 60s. So they took people such as myself, who had this unique and sophisticated medical training in the military, and we were the first PAs. I was the third licensed PA in the state of California in 1966. And I went to work in an emergency room over in the industrial complex in Huntington Park in East Los Angeles as the night doc in that emergency room. I was the night PA. I did the medicine in that, the primary medicine in that emergency room. I triaged all of the medicine, sutured the laceration, did all of the, we had all of the industrial injuries that came from Kaiser Steel and all of that big manufacturing complex. And we had the city contracts. We had the, the stabbings and the shootings from East LA. We'd all come into that ER and I was the guy in that ER. And you know what? I was very good. I did it well. And I made a lot of money and I was in on the ground floor of a new profession. And it was exciting. And the, the, that kind of medicine was, was a really, it got my adrenaline going. It was interesting and it was exciting and, and it was challenging and we did it well. And, the, and we had a staff there that was just crackerjack boiled. We didn't lose anybody, hardly ever, you know. We, really, we did a good job. And, uh, but you know, I, 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 and I met a beautiful girl, the daughter of a longtime sober AA member and we fell in love and we got married. And, and uh, she went to Al-Anon. And it was all just going to be so wonderful for us. I mean, we were just too precious. You know what I mean? <laughs> we just really were. Except I had not taken these steps. And there was no recovery in my life. 
And I'd go into this emergency room and I'd get depressed and I'd get anxious and I'd get that feelings of inadequacy and not being up to the task and not all the things that you and I know about that, that come from abstinence from alcohol without recovery. And I know how to take care of depression. I don't have a program, but I have a good medical education. So I use Dexedrine. 15 milligram spantules work best. And by the time I was through with those, I was taking seven or eight of them a day. Now, anyone here that knows anything about amphetamine abuse will understand. That's got you moving right along. Boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, you will do it in a hurry. <laughs> but there's a problem with that. Long about the fifth or sixth day, when you've not slept nor eaten, and your hair stands out on end like that, and your eyes dilate out here, your pupils are up by your ears, and you look perpetually like you have just witnessed an axe murder. <laughs> That's how you look. And you show up in the emergency room to help the sick. <laughs> the guy you're relieving never wants to go home. You know? They take a look at you and he says things like, Vince, Vince, Jesus, get some sleep. You need to eat. And so I needed to find an anecdote for that. And I did. Medical science is a wondrous thing. I want you to know. The remedy for that is a drug called Demerol. You, all of you know what Demerol is, don't you? I mean, it used to be a day when people didn't know, but they know now what Demerol is. Demerol is a narcotic. You know, it's not it's a synthetic, but trust me, you'd never know the difference. It's, it's really... <laughs> But it's a narcotic. And narcotics, uh, and I'm going to take a moment to, to, to just share this with you. There's a lot of confusion today about who's an alcoholic and who takes... I'm going to, I'm going to help you with that right now because I, I know about this. Uh, narcotics, uh, for those of you that don't know, are all really one drug. I don't know if you knew that. They all come from opium, and it's all essentially one drug. Uh, heroin, morphine, dilaudid, perkin, it's all the same drug. It's just buffered a little bit differently, but it's all really the same thing. Narcotics or opiates are addictive for everyone, without exception. You inject heroin intravenously or morphine intravenously, you will get addicted. You don't need to have an addictive personality or any of that, you know. You just need a syringe and a needle. That's all you need. You will become addicted. That is not true with alcohol. Narcotic addiction and alcoholism are different. Nine out of ten people who drink alcohol do it with impunity. They are never addicted. They don't have to come to AA. They don't wreck cars. They don't destroy families. They don't lose jobs. They're social drinkers. And they drink with impunity. Now, I don't understand them. But that's how nine out of ten people who drink, drink. They say things that are confusing, like, uh, no more for me, I'm driving. Remember that? <laughs> or, uh, yeah. or, I'd love to have another, but I can't. My wife's waiting dinner. I'm going home now. 
I'm not going home. I am going to Las Vegas, right? That is the difference between social drinkers. But nine out of ten people who drink, drink that way. And on the other hand, I have never met a social heroin user. I don't know any. So the dynamic is different. Now, many of us here have used both, but they're different, and you should understand that. In order to function in Alcoholics Anonymous, you must be an alcoholic, because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. However, if you're like me, and you quit drinking, and you didn't work these steps, and you don't have any recovery, and you go crazy, and you use drugs, that does not make you less of an alcoholic. It just makes you screwed up. And so I began to use Demerol in this emergency room. Now the trouble with, the other problem with Demerol is that people care about where it is. I mean, when they come in in the morning and open the narcotic drawer and all the dope is gone and they say things like, Vince, where the hell is the Demerol? The nurse doesn't know where it is. Where is it? And I'd say, I don't know. It was there a while ago. And they found that not to be a satisfactory answer. I got to tell you. And then one, early one Thursday morning, the people who care most about Demerol, I'll tell you who they are. The Medical Quality Assurance Board of the state of California. They came in and inspected the narcotic laws and all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> and they placed me under arrest, right there. Charged me with a felony, appropriating narcotics for my own use, and took me to the Los Angeles County Jail, right in my green little scrub suit. Downtown we went, right out of the emergency room. They had to call somebody to relieve me, and they took me to the Los Angeles County Jail, which is, by, by the way, in 1968 or so, that was the program for impaired physicians. Yeah. The L.A. County Jail. <laughs> That's what they did with you. They wanted you the hell out. There wasn't any, you know, what is your problem? How can we help you? Go away. Was, you know, and they, they charged me with a felony, appropriate narcotics for my own use, which was subsequently reduced to a misdemeanor. And I didn't have to do any jail time, but they took my medical license away. And uh, the long and short of this dreary tale is I spent the summer of 1972 living in an, air, in an apartment by the airport in Englewood, drinking one half gallon of vodka a day uh, through July, through June, July, and August of 1972. And I don't have to tell you about that kind of drinking. I mean, everybody here knows about that. And it's, uh, it is not social drinking, incidentally. <laughs> no one who drinks in a half gallon of vodka a day is so drinking socially. Uh, it's axiomatic. The same thing happens to everyone. I mean, you vomit bile, and you have, you know, I lose 30 pounds, I don't know, uh, I, 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 you don't go to sleep, you pass out. You don't wake up, you come to. You don't eat. Uh, you vomit bile, and you have uh, terrible, horrible nightmares, and you have many seizures, and, and if you're like me, you're, you're in, in and out of blackouts, and you don't know what's real and what isn't real. If you look at a clock, and it says 9 o'clock, is that 9 a.m. or p.m.? You have no concept. 
And that's the way that I lived. My wife left and they took the furniture and they took the car and they took everything. And it was just me in that apartment every day walking over to buy Alpha Beta brand vodka for $7 a half gallon out of the basket in the supermarket. Premium stuff. And it's better when you drink it hot, too, let me tell you. Alpha Beta brand vodka in August in the middle of a living room floor of this apartment and in a dirty Turkish bathrobe and, and that's how, how I lived that summer and uh, I remember uh, coming out of a blackout in Newport Beach and I don't remember how I got there except it was early September 1972 and the temperature was about 110 and I had on this three-piece wool suit and this white shirt and a tie and I found myself sitting on a bench by the Balboa Peninsula going through the Orange County newspaper looking for a job uh, and with some luggage next to me and somehow I had gotten down there I don't remember even coming down there but that's where I was and I found a job that day too as an apprentice in Balmer for a mortician in Costa Mesa <laughs> and I went to work for this undertaker in Costa Mesa and the job was it was, it was dreadful if you're new and you need a job do not do that I'm going to tell you it's a dreadful <laughs> bad idea it was awful uh, the uh, job paid $85 a week and a uh, fringe benefit was this uh, bachelor apartment over the room where they kept the caskets Christ you'd walk through the casket room in the morning with a hangover, which would set you free, boy, I'll tell you, it's Jesus. I mean, you know, oh, it was awful, and it was just, Christ, I learned that medicine and embalming are just not, you know, always awful, and I didn't like the mortician, and he didn't like me, he was a morose ghoul, is what he was, he, and he, he walked, he drug his right leg, it was like something out of Edgar Allan Poe, I'm telling you, it was like a god awful dreadful dreadful job and I and he and I had this argument and I got drunk and I stole his hearse <laughs> and on September the 20th 1972 I came out of yet one more blackout driving the wrong way on Pacific Coast Highway in Newport Beach in a stolen hearse <laughs> with a young lady next to me who I did not recall meeting oddly enough <laughs> screaming at the top of her lungs uh, because we were going the wrong way. And I remember thinking, you know, I really uh, have a character flaw, boy. i got to tell you, I, uh, I tend to choose women who are really neurotic. Uh, all of the women in my life end up screaming. Uh, and I remember I told her that, too. You know, I, I said, you know, I'm, I have to tell you something. You are really unstable. And you ought to get some counseling. You really should, because you're... Now, that was September the 20th, 1972. I have not seen her from that date to this. I hope she got home all right. But uh, I'll tell you what, what is more interesting about that date is I have not had a drink of alcohol, nor have I used any mood-altering chemical whatsoever from that date to this. And what's really remarkable about that is not so much that that's be 26 years ago next month, but what's remarkable about it is it was not my intention. I mean, the last thing, if you were to ask me to predict my future, sitting on the shoulder of Pacific Coast Highway at dawn, on September the 20th, 1972, across the street from the Arches, if you were to ask me to predict my future, the last thing I would have told you is, guess what? I'm beginning my sobriety today. For the next 26 years, I'm not going to drink any alcohol or use any drugs. That would have been the last thing I would ever have told you. But if you would have materialized in the back of that hearse and foretold my future, 
what you would have told me would have been absolutely spectacular. You would have said, today, you're going back to AA. And for the next 26 years, you're going to live in the bright light of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you're going to recover this time. You're going to get better. And the reason you're going to get better is because the condition is going to exist inside of you for the very first time in your life. And that is the ingredient necessary for recovery. If you're new, I'm going to tell you what it is. It is not love. We cannot love you into recovery here. We would like to, but we can't do it. It's something less attractive than love. It's called desperation. You need to be desperate here. Bob talked about it Friday night. You need to be desperate. You need to be desperate enough to take actions you do not believe in and direction from people you do not like. <laughs> you need that kind of desperation. And for the first time in my life, on September the 20th, 1972, I was desperate. And I brought that guy's hearse back to him, and he was unhappy. <laughs> he had called the police. And he had gone up into my bachelor apartment over the casket room and begun throwing my clothes out the window. And all of a sudden, it was about 7 a.m., and the sun began coming up. A beautiful summer Southern California day. And I stood in the blacktop parking lot of this mortuary in Costa Mesa with all of my clothes surrounding me on the ground. And I had no money and nobody left in my life and no job and no place to live. And I don't know about you, but every time I get in that kind of shape, I go to AA. <laughs> and I got a cardboard box, and I went around to that parking lot, and I picked up all of my clothes, and I took them to the Costa Mesa Alano Club, which is not much, let me tell you. But that's all that was available in 1972. There were no detoxes or treatment centers or, or uh, you know, touchy-feely I, you know, I'm not putting that down. I'm really not. I, I, I am not. I think it's wonderful that there's a place to get better here, to dry out. And, and if you've done that and are doing it or will do it or you know people are doing it, I think it's great. And I think if you need medical attention, you ought to get it. I, above anybody, would say that. So uh, I'm not putting it down. I'm telling you what it was like in 1972, though. There was nothing but the Costa Mesa Alano Club. And I reported to the coffee bar and I set my box down, and I had a cup of coffee, and they had an AA meeting there that noon, and it was a terrible meeting. It was awful. I'm not going to tell you. It was, not, it was grim. It was noontime Alano Club AA meetings. I don't know how many of them you've been to. Uh, you know, a lot of out-of-work plumbers from Texas. Uh, you know, shit. Uh, talking about putting the plug in the jug. I mean, good God. And they had another meeting there that night, which was worse. And the manager of the club let me sleep on the sofa, and I woke up in the morning, and there were some ladies in that club. We got in a gin rummy game, and I won $21. And I went out and rented a room on Federal Avenue in Costa Mesa for $11 a week. And I don't know if you've ever lived in an $11 a week room, but they are generic. <laughs> they're all the same. They're dreadful places. And I moved into this room, and I remember moving in there thinking, my God, I don't think I can live in a place like this. And I'm going to have to be here several weeks till I can get it together. And I don't think I can be here several weeks. And uh, two years later, when I moved out of that room, <laughs> didn't look that bad, quite frankly. Uh, my perspective had changed. 
So I spent my first two years of sobriety in Orange County, in the Newport Beach area. And, uh, and what I know about that today that I didn't know then, it was the most amazing, remarkable two years of my life. But I only know that in retrospect, which is how you know everything in AA, incidentally. Uh, you never know anything when it's going on, do you? You only know about it after the fact. And because if you would have asked me at any point during that two-year period of time, how are you? How's your life? I would have said, my life is awful. It is god-awful. I mean, I lost my medical license. I'm unemployable. I can't get a job. I'm not educated or trained to do anything else. My family doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I, I, I can't. I just can't stand it. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I got and lost jobs that were unbelievable. I lost a job as a gas station attendant for being incompetent. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, you can... I lost a job as a $1.87 an hour drill press operator where you sit on a stool and pull a handle, put a hole in the copper plate, and then you put the copper plate over there. I did that wrong. I put the hole in the wrong place, about 800 copper plates one day. And the foreman of this machine shop came up and told me, he said, he was from Texas too, incidentally, or Oklahoma, or some goddamn place, and he said... Uh, Son, I always call you son. Son, I got to let you go, boy. That's too bad, too, as I can see you're a real trier. But you're not quite bright enough to do this kind of work. And I, I remember telling him, I said, you jackass. You, you know, I'm not bright. You know, who you, I went to Cornell University. Mistake. He says, I'll tell you what, boy. You ought to go back there and take the course and drill press operating. <laughs> And he was right. And I remember leaving that machine shop, and it was now in early 1973, and it was pouring rain. It was February, and I've got to go back to this $11 a week room, and I've got bronchitis, and I'm walking in the rain, and it's cold, and I know that I'm going to get pneumonia, and I don't have medical insurance, and I've got a fever, and I'm just coughing. I'm thinking, God, what, what is the use? And I got back to this room, and there was some mail waiting for me. And I remember opening one letter was from a physician in upstate New York, inviting me to join a committee for my class reunion at college. The incongruity, I mean, how do you answer that letter? You know, I mean, when, when we say, I'm sorry, Dr. Medoff, I can't make it this year. You see, I've just lost my job as a drill press operator. And I, I mean, Jesus Christ. It just is, the, how does that happen? How the hell you get from there to here? How can that be? You know, it can't happen. And yet here I was. And that night, it was a Thursday, and, and it was the big meeting down on the Balboa Peninsula in the Ebel Club down there, and, and, and that was, uh, I used to go to that meeting every Thursday night, and, and it was a great meeting. It was a very up, you know, dynamic speaker meeting. The only problem is the people would tie their yachts up outside and come into that meeting. It would just make me depressed, you know, I mean, Jesus. But I would go, and, and, they were, and they were always very good to me. I mean, they were really good to me. They were kind to me and loving to me, and... And I would go to that meeting. And on this Thursday night, I went and I thought, even nothing can happen. And the most, the speaker that night <coughs> was maybe the uh, <coughs> quintessential speaker in the history of AA. This guy was, uh, I got to tell you, he was, uh, his name was Norm Alpey. And he, he was uh, the kind of, many of you are so new and young, you don't know who this guy was. Uh, get his tapes. But even they don't do him justice, do they? It, it, the, the guy was, he was, I'll tell you who he was. If, if Frank Capra, you probably don't know who Frank Capra is, so you're so young. Yeah. He was a great director that made great movies in, in the 40s. Uh, he, made, he made movies uh, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. You all see that at Christmas. 
He made movies that celebrated the human spirit. Uh, he made movies about good overcoming evil and, and, and uh, good people surviving and Mr. Everyman. And his hero always was an average guy. A guy or, or, a, or a gal sometimes who rose to the occasion. Who, who did better than they could ever do because circumstances demanding it. And so I always felt that if Frank Capra were to ever invent an AA speaker, he would have invented Norm Alfie because he was Mr. Everyman. And he had this marvelous story about just being a bad drunk and then a family man and a whole bunch of kids and, and how he coped with it all and, and, and the glory of Alcoholics Anonymous. He, it was just marvelous. And, and the thing about Norm Alfie is he, his talk was virtually the same word for word every time he ever, ever gave it and yet every time you heard it, it was as though this was the first time you heard it. And, and it was wonderful. And, but even that night, he did nothing for me. I listened to his talk and I thought, Christ, I can't, that will never happen to me. And I went back to that $11 a week room and I got soaking wet all over again. And I was, now I knew that I had pneumonia. And I got into that crummy room and I just thought, God, I can't, and then I did the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. The dumbest thing. I can't believe it. It's so stupid I ever did it. I got down to my knees beside the bed in that awful room. And I said a prayer. And it was a very simple, unsophisticated prayer. God, please help me. Because I am afraid and I am alone and I can't make it anymore. My recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous began that night. That is the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you are new and you don't know how to start, try that. And it is not necessary that you believe in that God or have any faith in that belief. It is only necessary that you are desperate enough to take the action. That is the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is about action. It is not about what you believe or what you think or what you feel. We are not interested in that here. We could care less what you think if you're new. Whatever you think is useless. We only care about what you do. And I began to get better. And it was very slow. I mean, it was no bright light. But wonderful things began to happen to me. I, the next day, I went back to that Alano Club to have a cup of coffee to figure out my next move. And there was a guy in that uh, Alano club who uh, hung around there. He was a kind of a, uh, a colorful AA character. He was a f in the floor covering business. He was a one-man entrepreneur. He would uh, go down to Lido Isle and sell these rich people floor covering. And then he would run up to the manufacturer and pick it up and run back and install it. You know, he was a, the kind of guy he was. He was an AA entrepreneur. And, uh, and uh, he, he was from Texas also. His name was Clarence. But I'll tell you, he was a wonderful guy. And what he did was he, he was sober about 11 years. And he said, would you like to go to work for me? You can be my gopher. He says, you can carry the tools and help me with carry the floor covering, the carpeting, and, and get the coffee. And I'll, he says, I'll pay you $10 a day, and I'll take you to dinner every night when we're done. My overhead is low. You know, I mean, <laughs> sounded like the presidency of General Motors to me. I mean, what the hell? <clears throat> so I went to work for Clarence, and I was his gopher. And uh, we would go, and we would work every day, and then at night we would end up in Marie, Marie Callender's in Newport Beach and we would have dinner and I would go to AA meetings and I'd continue to say this prayer and in the morning I'd get up and I'd say another prayer thank you very much for keeping me sober thank you God 
And I don't know, it, it seemed to me that nothing was working. It was terrible. My life was awful. I could never get my medical license back. I couldn't face my family. Uh, I, I was such, so ashamed and felt like such a disgrace. But I kept going to meetings, and I went to work every day with Clarence. And I remember one day in June, we had dinner at Marie Callender's, and we left Marie Callender's, and I found myself walking uh, down by Balboa Island, where the ferry goes across. And, and, and the sun was out, and it was a nice day. And for some reason, I felt good. And I, I can't tell you why I felt good. I had no good reason to feel good if you looked at my life, so I tried not to think about it. Just hold on to the feeling. You remember those days? And, and I remember I bought a frozen banana. And I think the first spiritual experience I ever had in my life was watching the sunset over the Balboa Peninsula, eating a frozen banana, thanking God for the fact that uh, I was sober. And that was enough. And that's the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. And time went by. And I took my second birthday cake in AA. And I knew I needed a, a sponsor who was, I needed some help. And I had put off getting a sponsor because I knew who the sponsor had to be. <laughs> and I did not like the idea, let me tell you. I didn't like this guy. He was about 16 years sober at the time. And he was uh, really a pathological, uh, you know. This guy uh, would, uh, was really, he was a big speaker in AA. And wherever he'd go, he'd take this coterie of new people with him and they'd get his coffee and save his seat. And just, Jesus, it was, you know. And you listen to him talk and you knew he was crazy. I mean, you know, the guy was really nuts. But he, there was something about this man that was indisputable. He had a capacity to help losers in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, he was the worst dregs of humanity would get this guy for a sponsor, drop off the face of the earth, join his fascist AA group on the west side of Los Angeles, and you wouldn't see them anymore. And they would, they'd turn up in Orange County and they'd be different human beings. And it was just, and I knew I needed that kind of help. And I, I remember one guy in particular, uh, uh, he was a biker, Manchester Red, he was called. He had this matted, filthy red beard and all his teeth kicked out. And, and he was always drunk in the meetings and he always wanted to kill people. In the, you know, I mean, Jesus Christ, he, he had a pint of Canadian club in his back pocket in the meetings, and you saw Red in the meeting, and you thought, oh, Jesus, not tonight, you know. I mean, he was, you tried to avoid him. Red dropped off the face of the earth, and word was he got this guy for a sponsor and joined this group in West of L.A., and uh, we didn't see him anymore. About four months later, somebody nudged me in an AA meeting, and, and they said, look, there's Red. And I looked in the back, and I said, where? And they said, right there. And I looked closely, and there he was except his beard was gone and his dental work was done and he had a haircut and he had on a blue blazer, gray slacks, loafers and he's sitting like a gentleman back of the AA meeting and somebody called on him to share and he came up to the podium and he said six months prior to that evening he'd made his first child support payment in 10 years and next month he was voting in the presidential election <laughs> for the Republican. Red paid taxes now. <laughs> and I think that pushed me over the edge. Now, I had acquired some material possessions by then. I had a 1964 red Chevrolet convertible with no brakes in the hole in the top. And that's how I got around in Orange County. I used to drive that to the Ebell Club on Thursday night. The minute they'd see me pulling in the parking lot, they'd immediately get in their Mercedes and put them on the other side of the lot. You know. They're always asking me questions like, do you have insurance on that car? You know, you remember that? 
I hadn't had a driver's license in three years. Why the hell would I have insurance? It's redundancy. <laughs> and I remember uh, I called this guy and asked him if he would help me, and uh, he said uh, I should go up and have lunch with him at this mission he ran on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And so I drove this old Chevy up to Los Angeles, and I went into this mission, and I had lunch with this guy. And my life changed from that moment because some magnificent things happened to me. He said something to me that I will tell you if you're new. I hope that, uh, that somebody someday says something like this to you. That He said, I will help you on one condition. That you can accept the very simple proposition that your very best judgment about your life is terrible. And that my judgment about your life, he didn't say about his life. He said about my life. He said, my judgment about your life is infinitely better than yours. And if you will do everything I suggest you do without debate, I will help you. Well, I am here to tell you that I was just desperate enough that day to make that unholy pact with the devil. <laughs> and I agreed to do that. And he told me I should move into that mission and live there. And I said, good God, you must be kidding. I live in Newport Beach. You don't understand. I'm looking for upward mobility, you know. And he said, I thought you just said you would do what I asked you to do. He said, I want you to live in this mission. And every day I want you to get up and report to my office at nine o'clock. And I'm going to give you an allowance, eight dollars a day. And I don't want you to drive that car anymore because it doesn't have insurance and no brakes. So I'm going to take it and park it in front of my house. And you're going to live in this mission. I'm going to give you $8 a day. And you're going to go outside and get on the 83 bus that runs up Wilshire Boulevard. And when you get on that bus, you're going to ask the driver for a handful of transfers. And every time you come to a hospital or a medical facility, you're going to get off that bus, go in and talk to the administrator, tell them you're sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and you haven't used drugs in over two years and you need your medical license back and you need a job and how can they help you? And I thought, that is the most preposterous goddamn thing I have ever heard in my life. And that, that might be as stupid an idea as utter waste of time. And uh, I did not say this to him, incidentally. I, uh, I said, uh, whatever you say. And so uh, I reported to his office and I picked up the $8. And for the next eight months, I lived in that mission on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And I rode that bus every day up Wilshire Boulevard. And during that eight-month period of time, I went into every medical facility between downtown L.A. and the San Fernando Valley five times. Uh, I went into UCLA and Santa Monica Hospital and St. John's and Good Samaritan and Queen of Angels. And I went into places like the Elmer Belt Urological Clinic. I mean, I went <laughs> everywhere anyone would possibly talk to me. And uh, they all said the same thing. No, we we'd love to help you but there's no way we can and I'd go back to his office and I'd tell him I said this doesn't work this is never going to work and he'd say shut up do you have a better idea and I'd say well not yet <laughs> and the next day I'd come down and get my eight dollars and then one day in June of 1975 I was two years and eight months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous two years and eight months sober I lived in a mission on Skid Row I was the only Ivy Leaguer there too I can tell you <laughs> I had no job, no car, no money, and no hope. All I had was this ridiculous childish prayer that would have made the Jesuits ashamed. Uh, and that's all I had. And I got my $8 one more 
goddamn Friday morning and went outside and got on that bus just to show this son of a bitch that he was wrong and he was stupid and that it would never work. And the first thing I did when I got on that bus is I sat down in this huge wad of chewing gum. I got it all over the back of my trousers and uh, I rode the bus about halfway up Wilshire Boulevard and I got off the bus and I went to this service station restroom and I took my pants off and I tried to clean that gum off with wet paper towels. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but it's just a guy. They were all down the legs. And I, I, was, I remember standing there. I'm standing in this Union 76 gas station men's room and I have on a white shirt and a tie and a vest and black socks and black shoes and a coat and my in my drawers and my pants in my hand and a wet paper towel. I am the most grotesque human being. I mean, and I, some businessmen had come in there and they looked at me. I could see the look in their eyes. You know, look at this. Jesus Christ, you know, look at this loser. And I just thought, I cannot, I, the best I can do today, I, I'm not looking for any job. I'm going to go to the movies. If I can sit, I won't drink. You know, maybe I can go to a movie and not drink. And I put my pants back on and got on the bus and rode to the end of the line into Santa Monica all by the ocean. And I went into the old Santa Monica Mall and I went into Manning's Cafeteria and I got a tray. It was one of those, ca- you know, you get a tray and you go down. And I went down the aisle and I got some lunch and I set it on the table. I went outside to get a, a Los Angeles Times to read with my lunch. And while I'm out there getting the paper, the busboy comes by and takes my lunch. <laughs> you know, God, this is, you know, it's just hideous. It's just hideous. And so I, I, I think maybe I'll go to the movies. I've got to get in the movie right now, right now. And so I walk from Santa Monica to Westwood Village where the UCLA campus is. And I get on the line to the Bruin Theater to see a movie. The Godfather 2 was the movie. And I'm standing in line to buy a ticket. And someone called my name. And I turned around and came face to face with the administrator of the medical center in which I had been arrested in for stealing Demerol. And he said, Vince, he said, is that you? I said, it is indeed. He said, how are you? I said, well, I'm... <laughs> Got this chewing gum all over my ass. But aside from that, you know, I don't... I said, I'm sober for two years in AA, Norm. His name was Norman Vies. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm doing well, really. I said, I don't drink and I don't use drugs. And, and he looked at me and he started to cry. He put his arms around me. He was so profoundly impressed to see me. He said, we thought you were locked up somewhere. He said, you were crazy. He said, I'm so glad to see you. And I'm so glad you're all right. He said, when have you worked last? And I said, I haven't worked in a long time. He said, this is amazing. We've just had a urologist. He's joined our group practice who's a member of the Medical Quality Assurance Board. Uh, and he's going to be in the clinic tomorrow. It's Saturday. I want you to come down. The three of us are going to have lunch. Maybe he can write some letters. Maybe he can get your medical license back. And if he can, how would you like a job? And I went down the next day, and I met this urologist, and he wrote some letters. Within 60 days, my medical license was restored. I went back to work in the very same emergency room in which I was arrested in for stealing narcotics, and I worked there for the next two and a half years. And the care the patients got was good. No dope was missing. And I began to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to take these steps. I wrote this inventory precisely as it's directed to do. And I want you to know, if you're new, when you get around to this, that that's what it is. It is a searching and fearless moral inventory. And the word moral is not a mistake. It is not a psychological inventory designed to get you in touch with your feelings. 
It is about your secrets. We want to know your secrets. And if you do that, you become free. And my life flourished and, and wonderful things have happened to me. And I, I can't tell you. I mean, I've made mistakes. Every mistake you could possibly make. In 1976, I met this cute little redhead. We met in uh, October, got divorced in uh, December. Uh, that was a mistake. And the last time I saw her, she was on the way back to her daddy's ranch in El Dorado, Texas, too. I tell you. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I didn't drink and I didn't run. And in 1975, uh, uh, a girl got sober in our group and her husband was dying of lung cancer. And she got sober while she took care of him in the last days of his life, which is a pretty big deal. And she was uh, charming and lovely, and she was just. Uh, we became friends, and her husband passed away, and we began dating, and we fell in love, and we got married. And that was 18 years ago. And she's not been hysterical one time. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about my marriage. I will tell you, I love my wife more with every breath I take, more today than I did then. We have a wonderful marriage, and we've had a tough time the last couple of years. I've had a couple of heart attacks, and I've had bypass surgery, and my business has gone down the drain. I was in a new business. I'm a voc rehab counselor, had my own firm, made a lot of money, and, and it was tough, and, and they changed the laws, and all of that happened at one time, but my marriage gets stronger every day. In the midst of all of this, we become closer together. And we have a great life, and all of that is as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, nothing else. And uh, my perspective has changed. I, you know, I drive a Mercedes today, and when I pull it into meetings where there's beat-up old Chevys, I put it on the other side of the lot. <laughs> I know they don't have insurance. And I'll close by saying this. I have taken these steps, 1 through 12, and I have a wonderful life. And I know what it's like to be brand new, sitting in these meetings, to be terrified and alone, and not knowing what's going to happen next, and not thinking anything good will ever happen again, and knowing that there's danger out there. Well, I have something to tell you. If you're new here tonight, you can rest now. You are safe. Thank you. Mm -hmm.